Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what happens when the so-called nuclear experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Chuck McCune, a 25-year veteran disaster preparedness pro who has seen firsthand the devastation in Haiti and in New Orleans from Hurricane Katrina. He shares with us the problems of working with FEMA and the possible impact of a natural disaster on our aging fleet of nuclear reactors, as well as a vision for a new wave of activism. That interview will be coming up in just a moment. Today is Tuesday, July 23, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. Starting out with news from the United States, where the fight over exactly who is to blame for the breakdown of the San Onofre nuclear power plant continues to heat up. San Diego Gas and Electric filed suit this week against steam generator manufacturer Mitsubishi Heavy Industries and its U.S. affiliates. SDG&E charges that the nuclear division of the Japanese conglomerate concealed its inability to design and fabricate steam generators of the size and complexity required at San Onofre. Majority owner and plant operator Southern California Edison has put Mitsubishi on notice that it will seek to recover potentially billions of dollars through negotiations that are likely to end in binding arbitration. But Mitsubishi says it is only responsible for the $137 million in costs of the equipment it delivered to San Onofre. When worlds collide, you did it, did not, did to, A bit of clarity on what this issue really means comes from Rochelle Becker of the Alliance for Nuclear Responsibility. She wrote, The lawsuit draws on concerns about design flaws raised by an Edison executive in 2004 during the first months of the project as proof that Mitsubishi was aware of the potential for tubeware. But this proves that both SCE and SDG&E were aware of design flaws in 2004 and still asked the California Public Utilities Commission for over $600 million in ratepayer funding to pay for these flawed steam generators that lasted less than two years. Customers deserve their money back now, after 19 months of non-operation, as we are the only blameless participants in this costly process. So look, guys. Just don't charge the ratepayers, and you can duke it out to your heart's content. Meanwhile, what are you going to do with the friggin' nuclear waste dump called San Onofre that is still stuck on the coast within five miles of an earthquake fault? Details as they occur. The Pilgrim plant out on Cape Cod is in hot water yet again, and this time it's literal because warming bay water threatens to shut it down. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission requires that the water drawn from Cape Cod Bay to cool the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station be below 75 degrees. But last Tuesday afternoon, July 16, the water exceeded that temperature for about 90 minutes, forcing the plant to reduce power output. This is not without precedent. Connecticut Yankee was shut down last August for two weeks due to water intake temperatures that exceeded the 75-degree limit. Pilgrim Owner Entergy is exploring ways to increase the 75-degree maximum inlet water temperature to something higher that's just allowed 
because the paperwork got changed. That's right, change the numbers and the problem goes away. Or seems to. But you can't change the science. And that temperature was set at 75 degrees for a reason. An important report nailing the nuclear illusion of Renaissance was released last week by former NRC Commissioner Peter Bradford and Vermont Law School nuclear economist Mark Cooper. This new report identifies the 38 reactors in the United States most at risk of early retirement for a variety of economic, operational, and safety reasons. It includes the top 12 that are most likely to be shut down in the near term. We're working on getting an interview on this for Nuclear Hot Seat, and hopefully we'll have that within the next few weeks. Just when the Fort Calhoun nuclear power plant in Nebraska didn't seem like it could be facing any more problems, here comes another one. Omaha Public Power District, the nation's 12th largest public power utility, is at risk of a rating cut by Moody's Investor Services amid delays in reopening its Fort Calhoun Station nuclear plant. The facility has been shut down since 2011, in part to safeguard against Missouri River flooding and the threat of Midwest tornadoes. Investors in the municipal bond market have to factor in borrowers' preparedness for natural disasters into their risk analysis. The Nebraska shutdown shows the cost to issuers when they fall short. The 40-year-old Fort Calhoun site needed upgrades to ensure it could ride out a tornado. The findings were on top of 450 items, 450 separate individual items that the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission has discovered at Fort Calhoun since 2011. Why don't you just shoot it and put it out of its misery? The lawsuit by United States service people against TEPCO for radiation-related illness continues to grow. There are now more than 50 participants in this lawsuit, and their complaints include illnesses following their exposure to radiation on the USS Ronald Reagan that include sharp hip pains, scabbing in the nose, back pain, memory loss, immune system diseases, ringing in the ears, leukemia, testicular cancer, thyroid problems, rectal and gynecological bleeding, a brain tumor, And in one instance, Senior Chief Mike Seaborn reported that he suffered nosebleeds, headaches, and nausea in the immediate aftermath, symptoms consistent with radiation poisoning. Months later, he felt weak in his right arm, excruciating pain followed, and his arm atrophied to about half its normal size. Now, these United States service people are suing TEPCO because legally they cannot sue the Navy, or the United States government. That's because in order to serve in the military, the seamen and seawomen not only had to sign away their rights to sue, before they were allowed off the USS Ronald Reagan, they were also forced to sign an additional waiver. We have the full background on this, which came from Dr. Helen Caldicott's symposium on the medical and ecological consequences of the Fukushima nuclear disaster, which was held March 11 and 12 in New York City. This is reported on Nuclear Hot Seat number 96, so just scroll through the archives on the website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. And here we have the Nuclear Hot Seat. 
Numbnuts of the Week, and that will be recorded very soon. There seems to be a mystery about why so many babies are born with brain defects in Washington State that leave them blind, deaf, and unable to feel pain. Anencephalic babies are born without a large portion of the brain, skull, and scalp. The anencephaly occurs between the third and fourth weeks of pregnancy, and the prognosis for the babies born with anencephaly is always death. Now, Washington State authorities claim to be baffled after an investigation into the spike in this rare birth defect in several neighboring counties in Washington State has failed to uncover a common cause, or so they say. The counties involved are Yakima, Franklin, and Benton, all in south-central and southeast Washington. And what else is located in Benton County, class? Can you say Hanford Nuclear Site? And yet, they don't see any kind of a connection. The normal rate for anencephaly is one or two per 10,000 births. The rate in the Washington State counties is eight per 10,000, or a 400% to 800% increase. Stupefying. Right before their noses, and they can't even see it. And that is why Washington State authorities have won this week's Numbnuts of the Week. We'll have that recorded for you with real musicians in a very short period of time. Over to Japan, where today, July 23rd, TEPCO said that it has confirmed that, quote-unquote, something like steam is coming out of the number three reactor building again. The steam from an unknown source was first spotted near the fifth floor of the Fukushima plant's number three reactor building on July 18. According to the BBC's Rupert Wingfield Hayes, who is stationed in Tokyo for that network, The sight of steam rising is worrying because it means somewhere inside the reactor building, water is boiling. So much for the cold shutdown that TEPCO claimed. TEPCO, liar, liar, pants on fire. And hopefully it's only your pants that are on fire. TEPCO has also come clean with the announcement that just under 2,000 people, 1,973 to be exact, About 10% of those employed in emergency crews involved in the cleanup since the meltdowns at Fukushima Daiichi are believed to have been exposed to enough radiation to face a heightened risk of thyroid cancer. Ya think? This represents a tenfold increase on TEPCO's previous estimate of the number of possible thyroid cancer victims. Each worker in this group has been exposed to at least 100 millisieverts of radiation, And that's not counting the radiation they may have gotten when they were instructed to cover their radiation badges with lead tape so that they wouldn't register anything. But even at 100 millisieverts of radiation, it's a level considered by doctors to be a possible threshold for increased cancer risk. These workers are now eligible for an annual thyroid checkup and other health services paid for by the company. Why is that not reassuring? What about long-term care? What about survivor benefits? What about not having had this in your body in the first place so you would have a chance of your normal lifespan? The citizens of Senegawa, a small town in the southern part of Fukushima, 
are protesting the nuclear waste incinerator that was built without them having information nor giving permission beforehand. The Japanese Ministry of Environment, or MOE, readily admits that the technology they just put in place is still experimental. The local citizens have been protesting because their area is still relatively uncontaminated by the radiation from the ongoing triple meltdown at Fukushima Daiichi. But the filtration system of this incinerator is not guaranteed to catch radioactive cesium dispersed as either a gaseous substance or as small or nano-sized particles. These people have expressed concern that the radioactive cesium emitted from smokestacks will simply be released into the atmosphere where it will travel the globe. The demonstrations took place on July 18. We're still waiting to hear what the results were. This probably related and upsetting entry comes from Fukushima Diary and our friend Iori Mochizuki. He writes, My acquaintance told me they had a baby. The baby has six fingers on both of hands. Arms might be a little short. The heart is anaplastic. It's not divided into four chambers. It has just one room. Now the baby is in ICU for surgery by Medical University. The nuclear chickens come home to roost. The elections took place in Japan last week, and while... They were enormously disappointing to anyone who is anti-nuclear. There was one bright spot. Actor Taro Yamamoto, an independent newcomer who campaigned on a platform of abandoning nuclear power generation, was elected to the upper house of the Diet, the Japanese parliament, on July 21st from a Tokyo district. Yamamoto, only 38, said, This is where the real fight begins, as he pumped his fist in the air in front of supporters. I want to continue to call for the abolition of nuclear power. Although some political parties proposed supporting Yamamoto in the upper house election, the anti-nuclear activist refused their offers, saying, I will win using civilian power alone. And he did, along with Facebook, Twitter, and the rest of the Internet. This is the political future of Japan. As for the rest of the country in the election... It flirts with numnutsery. A survey revealed that 80% of the Japanese believe nuclear disaster is probable or likely if reactors are restarted. All but two of Japan's 50 working nuclear reactors were mothballed in the wake of the Fukushima crisis. In case of something like Fukushima happening again, over 27% of respondents said the government was completely ill-prepared for a crisis, while another 63.8% said the steps that have been taken to reduce the risk were not quite enough. So Japan, why did the majority of the respondents still say that the reactors should be restarted? That's over 54% of them that held this opinion. And why in the world did you elect the LDP, the Labor Democratic Party, the only pro-nuclear party, to such an overwhelming victory in Japan. You know, this would be numbnuts of the week for the entire Japanese population, except it may be more likely that it's pointing to the manipulation of the media, the perception, and the overwhelming propaganda campaign that is pro-nuclear that has been coming down ever since Shinzo Abe became prime minister. More political news out of Japan. 
Former Prime Minister Naoto Kan, who was the Prime Minister during the Fukushima disaster. Kan has sued current Prime Minister Shinzo Abe for defamation over Abe's email magazine mention, alleging Kan, quote, stopping the injection of seawater into the reactor and later taking credit for seawater injection, end quote. In Abe's mail magazine, he wrote, following the manual, TEPCO was planning to inject seawater after the supply of fresh water depleted. However, it was Prime Minister Khan himself who stopped the seawater injection which had just started. Mr. Khan said in a press conference he held in the Diet Building, the content is based on totally false information. The article has severely damaged my honor. Well, we can't speak about your honor, Mr. Khan, but we can speak about the information. According to the obituary that was printed in several different sources in Japan and was reported on Nuclear Hot Seat number 108, the obituary for Masao Yoshida, the heroic plant manager who led the Fukushima 50 in the hours and days immediately after the nuclear disaster began, it was stated that the order to stop injecting seawater came from TEPCO, not from Mr. Khan or the government and that Yoshida took personal responsibility for keeping the seawater cooling the reactors, thus stopping the disaster from being even worse than it has been. So shame on you, Prime Minister Abe, for trying to make political gain out of the disaster and the pain that it has inflicted, and for perpetrating one of the lies that forced your opponent, the now anti-nuclear Khan, out of office. Further international news before we get to the interview. In China, during a typhoon on July 16, the Unit 2 reactor of the Qinshan Nuclear Power Station in New Taipei City was automatically shut down when instruments detected too much water in the reactor pressure vessel. A plant worker switched off a draining valve to control the heat in the reactor. He added water to the reactor to keep the water level up, but panicked and added too much water too fast, which eventually caused the reactor to automatically scram or shut down from full power. During the typhoon, winds above 117 kilometers per hour, or 72 miles per hour, threatened transmission systems. A few hours later, seawater overran the cooling water intake, bringing in plant debris that clogged the debris screen. Lightning damage to the main transformer, as well as storm damage to the switchyard insulator and overhead lines, also took place. But hey, it's nuclear. What could go wrong? Let me count the ways. All you San Onofre people, listen close to this one and see if you recognize anything. In New Brunswick, Canada... The Point Le Preux nuclear generating station is going to be shut down for two weeks in late summer for repairs, according to documents filed with the Energy and Utilities Board. The facility has developed a vibration in a non-nuclear pipe that transports steam, likely to the plant's turbines, and has been unable to achieve full power because of the problem. This sounds so much like San Onofre. Yet, only last week, Gaten Thomas, the president and chief executive officer of NB Power, announced that Point Lepreau was finally operating trouble-free. It's running well, he told reporters last Thursday. We have no issues limiting high-power operation at Lepreau right now. At that exact moment, no, there wasn't a problem. 
but it didn't take too long until there was. NB Power has since defended its decision not to publicly announce their recent setback. The little man behind the curtain is naked, but hey, step away from the truth. They lie. It's the first thing they do, it's the last thing they do, until we catch them and prove it. And this from Beyond Nuclear. The newly published World Nuclear Industry Status Report for 2013 provides a reality check of the current situation and trends of an industry in great difficulties. Nuclear power generation experienced a record drop of 7% in 2012. There has been a long-term steady drop of the nuclear share in global electricity production from 17% in 1993 to only 10% in 2012. The average age of nuclear reactors around the world is now 29 years, with 190 units in operation for 30 or more years. And in the worst possible news for the nuclear industry, China, Germany, India, and Japan, as of 2012, generated more power from renewables than from nuclear facilities. We don't need it, guys, and in the upcoming interview, you're going to learn a lot more about why that is the real case. Two links that we're going to have on the website. The first is a reminder of a World Health Organization news release from the end of May 2012. In it, they said that world cancer incidence will increase by 75% by 2030. As was pointed out last week in Nuclear Hot Seat, there is a quote, from Alexei Yablokov that stated that the current increase in cancer worldwide is the Chernobyl radiation coming home to roost. There will be a link to that WHO news release on nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. Also, there will be a link to this article about the likelihood of a Chinese nuclear disaster, and it shows that one is highly probable by 2030. This involves some theoretical calculations involving something called reactor here, which is the equivalent of one reactor operating for one year. It's a bit complex to go into on the podcast. That's why there's going to be a link. Time for the interview. This week, we're talking with Chuck McCune, who is a disaster preparedness professional with 25 years of experience, as well as a contractor, inventor, and the executive director of the PRISM Foundation. Chuck has seen firsthand the impact of disasters in Haiti after Hurricane Irene and in Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina. He has worked directly with high-level members of FEMA and has had access to information that is not readily shared with the general public, some of which he is going to share with us in this interview. He has some powerful insights as to how a natural disaster could impact our country's 100 active nuclear reactors, as well as a vision for how we, as a national movement, can become more effective. Give a listen. Chuck McCune, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Thanks for having me. Give us a little idea of the background that you come from and how you first got involved in the nuclear movement. I've been a contractor and in the building industry, and I've always been aware of the nuclear issues since I was maybe 18 years old. We had a lot. I lived in New York. There was a lot of opposition to Indian Point when 
Indian Point 1 and 2 were operating. Indian Point 1 without an emergency car cooling system, the shutdown of Shoreham Reactor. Um, I've always just been aware of what's been going on because people around me were aware of it, and it always seemed from a contracting point of view, from a construction point of view, that this was really a, a very untenable technology. It requires a static environment around it, and the world is not static. The world is dynamic, and in order for these plants to operate safely, at best, it has to be a static environment, and that's just not possible. What ways did you follow up with that early impulse towards activism, or did it get put to one side as you went in other directions in your life? Well, obviously, life happens while you're making other plans, but uh, <laughs> I went to, uh, thank you, John Lennon, I went to architecture school in New Mexico, and I got much more active when I first came to New Mexico because there were mining issues. I asked a hearing officer once in a hearing what, what he thought the reasonable future, foreseeable future was, and he said 100 years. And that kind of thinking, when we have waste for the next many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, is really cognitive dissonance. Now, your career led you into working on disaster preparedness and disaster remediation. How has that prepared you or skewed your thinking as regards nuclear issues? Well, I started in architecture school, and I, I started designing buildings for marginalized folks in situations, economic troubling situations, and then I realized that People who are homeless because of disasters are in need of shelter as well, and I started designing shelters and meeting with FEMA and looking at disasters for uh, mitigation of those damages in disasters, and I started designing flood-resistant and hurricane-resistant buildings. And as I kept meeting with FEMA, I became interested in their logistical and their logistical capabilities when it comes to disasters. and. I spent a lot of time in, in New Orleans after Katrina, but in 2004 I met with DHS officials and FEMA officials in Washington, D.C. regarding shelter. I had just developed a hurricane-resistant uh, sheltering system. And in an informal meeting after our formal presentations, one of the uh, officials came over to me in a coffee shop and said, you know, the big one is coming and we're not ready. And I said to him, what is the big one? And he said, the new magic fault. Located in the Blue Hill of Tennessee, but it runs from roughly Chicago down to New Orleans and almost that wide. And in that area, we have 23 nuclear power plants. Mm. Um, I've seen what earthquakes do. The last time the New Madrid Fault moved in any significant amount was 1811, 1812, and it rang bells in Boston, and it's widely accepted at DHS and FEMA that nothing will stand in that area if and when, and it will happen again, obviously, that happens, nothing will stand there now. Now, that is particularly of interest when it comes to nuclear because after Fukushima, we know that one of the biggest problems nuclear has, nuclear power plants have, is the ability to be provided with off-site power. When there's no off-site power from the grid, then they require backup power and battery power and under the conditions that would be imposed by a major New Madrid earthquake, we would have one or more Fukushima's possible in that scenario because we would not be able to have the logistical support from FEMA to or anyone else, first responders, to handle the level of that emergency. 
even two or three nuclear power plants out of those 23 having a problem in that grid. And we only have three grids in the United States, so that whole grid could go down. And we might even have more nuclear power plant troubles in that whole eastern grid, which could be 50 plants. So it's, it's a pretty significant scenario that could result in a calamity of unprecedented proportions. And all it takes, of course, is one going down. As regards FEMA, do they have a nuclear disaster preparedness plan, or is this something that they have not yet put in place? I believe they have plans out the wazoo, as they say, or as we say, but the plans are really not executable when you think about millions of people being affected in something. FEMA... And I will say also there are a lot of good people and very competent people at FEMA, but it is an animal that is so large that it cannot manage its own girth. And that was proven in, in the aftermath of Katrina. It takes 10 days to mobilize FEMA in an emergency, and we saw that in Hurricane Irene, we saw that in Katrina, we saw it in Hurricane Sandy. That's just how it is. And so regardless of the plans that they have, Logistically, it's just not possible to catch up on any disaster of any size, no matter how good their plans are. And they know this as well as I do. I think that FEMA certainly has improved after Hurricane Katrina. They've got a first responder, Craig Fouguet, as the head of FEMA. He's a firefighter from Florida, so he knows what it's like to carry people out of buildings and, and save people's lives. But He's got a tiger by the tail, just like anybody in FEMA. So I do believe that it is logistically impossible for our Department of Homeland Security and our Federal Emergency Management Agency to effectively deal with a catastrophic event such as the New Madrid quake in the context of nuclear power plants failing, melting down. You know, obviously there would be a lot of people to be rescued from earthquake collapsed buildings and I saw what happened in Haiti and certainly have better building standards here than we do in Haiti but fact is there will be a lot of people that need help and there will be a lot of clogged roads and infrastructure failings and I just don't see how it's possible to deal with a level 5 or 7 event in the New Madrid area or really anywhere in this country in any effective manner. You could put a, a, a Fukushima plume around any nuclear plant in this country and projected according to the wind maps. And for the most part, you're affecting hundreds, if not 200 million people. We had a problem with one million evacuees from New Orleans and the Mississippi area after Katrina, and that was not well absorbed by the country or well handled. We had people getting having their kids put on buses, not even with their family members, months of trying to find family members people dying of thirst and food and heat. and it just is, It's an untenable, unmanageable situation, no matter how it happens. And with nuclear, of course, there would be the ongoing danger of contamination from the radionuclides, from whatever radioactive materials are being released from the reactors. Yeah, so that... imagine, the, imagine the panic. Imagine the, the people leaving to get out from under it. Our, our highway system can't handle it. People rarely have enough, more than a half a tank of gas in their cars. You know, they'd get halfway out of the danger area and they'd be out of gas. And then they'd be out of water and out of food. And how does FEMA get to those people? And you, when you think about a, a disaster where 
millions, not just one million, but multiple millions of people are evacuating. It just cannot be supported, handled, managed, or even accomplished. So I think that if I were to try to put myself in the place of a FEMA official, I would be like, yikes, what the hell are we going to do? And throw up my hands. I mean, what can you do with that kind of that kind of enormity of a situation? I have no answer to that. Well, I don't either, and that's why I'm I'm uh, screaming about this because there's just no way that we can that we can deal with this in any effective manner. That's right. the problem. The evacuation problem, of course, was key in the thinking here in Southern California when we got San Onofre shut down. And it's now playing a major point in the fight over Pilgrim on Cape Cod because there's no way to evacuate. Traffic jams there are terrible. It's just two of the places where it's much more visible, it's much more blatant than uh, perhaps in other parts of the country. Uh, That brings to bear the issue of cognitive dissonance regarding evacuations and evacuation areas. You look at the the maps of anyone that puts these maps out about evacuation areas, and around every plant, it's a circle. We know from Fukushima, we know from anything, that the the plume is never a circle, and it's never static, so it's never in one area. So, you know, the plume is going to whip back and forth just like Fukushima did, just like a fire hose that's unattended or unheld. It's going to be whipping back and forth towards the east of wherever the accident might happen, and so it continually affects many, many people that are not within that 20-, 50-mile circle. The circles are meaningless. They really are. They might be important if there's an explosion because explosions are circular in nature. The shock wave from the explosion is circular, but the plumes are never circular. So that's the cognitive dissonance right there in terms of evacuation plans. There are a couple of quotes I came across from you that really intrigued me and led to this interview. The first one is that because of your involvement with disaster preparedness, you said, it has formed my understanding of what a Fukushima disaster could look like in America. My role now is to avert the calamity or save as many as I can and to call attention to our complacency in dealing with the impending tipping point. And you went on to mention a number of those. Talk a little bit about that stand that you've taken within your life. When we talk about tipping points, I mean, we, we're, we're sort of manufacturing a convergence of disasters as a society. We have an enormous climate disruption or climate change going on regarding the burning of fossil fuels that we really may be too late to reverse, and that has affected our crop areas, our, our food production It's affected where water gets delivered all over the place. And so we look at that. There's a calamity there. And then in that food area, we have a calamity brewing with the GMO pandemic that we allowed to get hold of our food supply, where we have no food security whatsoever in terms of safe food to eat, as we allow Monsanto and others to tinker with our food and the safety of our food. And to say nothing of the radiation that has come over from Fukushima or that comes homegrown from our reactors, that Absolutely. has found its way into our food supply as well. Absolutely. We have, we have these convergences going on. And then when you look at our water vulnerability and fracking and oil spills and the water contamination from nuclear endeavors around the world, we have a very significant convergence of disasters going on. And I'd like to say that the water crisis, I don't, I can't tell what that is, but I talked to a soldier several years ago who witnessed a Chinese vessel towing 100 
bladders of water from the Middle East to China. And those bladders were a million gallons each. So that's 100 million gallons of water being exported halfway across the world. Now, if that's economical, then we probably do have a pretty significant water crisis already underway, and we don't even know the extent of it. The aquifer from the Dakotas down to Texas has been dropping, and it dropped four and a quarter feet since 2011. And that would take 100 years of rain to make up for it. So I believe that we have a really serious water crisis that is being talked about around the edges, but we need to deal with that. And when we come to things like oil spills and pipeline spills and fracking contamination, it seems pretty simple that or a pretty simple uh, decision we need to make is don't mess with the water because we don't have enough of it and we we'll probably have less than we need. And, of course, water is a major factor in nuclear because, first of all, any water that goes through and is used in cooling is heated up so it goes back into the source at a higher temperature. The water itself is, especially with the heat waves, getting so much hotter that it's getting to the point where reactors have to be turned down because there's not enough temperature difference between the water and the ambient in the plant that it actually can cool it. And, of course, there's the problem of contamination of water from any radionuclides or tritium that gets leaked. Well, that's absolutely true. And then there's another aspect of the water issue that could be really serious in a cataclysmic sort of way, and that is that should we have a level 5 to 7 incident in America at some of these inland nuclear power plants, they're not going to have the ocean that Fukushima had to just dump water on continuously. They will run out of water, and there will not be the ability for the Suicide 50 to fix anything on any plant that's inland when they don't have the water to flush onto the melting corium. So water is a very significant issue when it comes to nuclear power. There was a quote that you put up. There was quite a heated exchange on uh, one of our movement sites in the past week, and that was what attracted me to you because you were taking a slightly contrarian position. I'll be gentle about that. But the quote that I pulled out was, we must resist complacency, overcome our fears and worries, find our courage to fight the good fight, to protect our young like any animal, no more, no less than the courage of a sparrow swooping down in from above on a vulture. We have the moral high ground. This is the fight for the future of our world. And you were addressing other anti-nuclear activists about a stance. Could you talk a little bit about that? I find that there's more courage in a hummingbird than there is in most human beings. And that's not just an indictment of those groups. Humans like the status quo. We like what we know. We're fighting a battle where we know we're able to do petitions and marches. We get together with everybody. It's camaraderie. And it's, it's known. People generally, the human condition is we like what's known. We have to change our narrative. We have to act differently than we've acted for the last several decades when it comes to our fight with nuclear because we've been doing the petitions, we've been doing the marches, we've been doing the hearings and the demonstrations, but the same result happens. That's really cognitive dissonance too. If we're going to repeat the same behavior over and over again and expect a different outcome, that doesn't work for this movement. We need to jump in and start getting more offensive because the industry is an offender. It's an aggressor. We need to match that aggression with our own. 
Now, I'm not saying, and I'm definitely against any kind of violent interactions, any unlawful interactions. I don't even think we should go out there and put ourselves in the position of being arrested. I think that the perp walk should be reserved for the nuclear gang and not for us. We marginalize ourselves as well when we get arrested. It's economically marginalizing to be arrested, have to pay court costs and lawyers and all that. They have lots of money. We have very little money. So we don't need to waste our money on getting ourselves bailed out of jail. But we do need to fight this on the money issues because the money issues, the amount that they're spending is irrefutable. And we have no idea whatsoever that what nuclear power will cost us. If we demand accountability, and this is really the only place that they can be really held accountable because these are figures that are irrefutable. If we march out 100 expert witnesses that say the radiation is dangerous at these levels, they will march out 101, and the hearing officer will go, oh, majority. But when it comes to the money, it's irrefutable. There's an accounting that has been done. They spend it. They go back all the time for their subsidies. And their stockholders are getting reports every year. The money is accountable. We can look at it and say, okay, this is crazy. It'd be like if I sold you a used car, and it was not a great used car, and I said to you, well, you can have this car for a very small payment each month in your electric bill. I don't know, I'm using an electric bill as an analogy here, but we can, you could pay for this car in a very small payment per month. You'll never pay it off, though. You'll pay me forever. So you'll never really know what that car is going to cost you. And by the way, the brakes are bad. It's probably going to explode. It might kill your whole family, but it's a great deal. I mean, that's the kind of bargain we're being asked to accept when it comes to nuclear. And, and I always ask a nuclear proponent what the cost of the waste will be in the year 5213. That's 50,000 years from now. Or 25213. That's 250,000 years from now. They have no answer to that. They don't know under what monetary system under what containment, what management, what maintenance, what country, where. They can't answer these questions. So if we ask them the questions they cannot answer, particularly when it comes to the money, because we can prove that, that is where we win this battle. And then when we look at the legal actions, when you go into things like discovery and questions in discovery, then we figure out, well, hey, there's a document here that has, doesn't have the right signature on it or no signature or there's something fudged records here. These are the things that can bring out fraudulent acts and illegal acts, and then maybe we have more legal teeth to, to sink into this industry. We have to demand accountability. What do you see as some of the moves we as a movement need to be taking in order to move our agenda forward? We need to raise some money for these legal actions. Everyone spends money to go to a demonstration, to go to a hearing, to buy a $5 cup of coffee. We need to start raising money and, and raise some sort of a nuclear monetary war chest. They've got lots of money. They march out lots of lawyers. I've been in hearings where they all have the same yellow cake jackets on, and we're there taking off work, making excuses to our bosses, having our babies crying in our laps in these hearings. These folks are organized, and they are funded. Now, we don't need to match their money, but we need to have a little bit. We need to be able to launch the legal actions. We need to be able to sustain them. And we need to raise the money before we actually file them because no attorneys, no paralegals, no one's going to do that unless we have some money up ahead. Now, we don't need a lot, but we do need some. So I'm suggesting that all groups get together. And this is why I've gravitated to some of the groups I've found where you and I cross paths is that, some of the groups are large, and they also are made up of members of other groups all over the world. We need to start working together in solidarity. 
And that means solidarity not just between our anti-nuclear and pro-gas, because that's the next alternative. We've got lots of gas, but that means fracking. So we have to act in solidarity, and we have to do things like we have to invest in and demand solar and wind energy as a, as a replacement. Those technologies can supplant nuclear very easily. You combine those things with conservation, we don't need nuclear at all, even if we just use conservation. Nuclear only provides 19% of our electricity. We can get rid of that with just conservation alone. That means just shutting off the lights, unplugging our cell phone chargers. We waste a lot. I mean, you only need to go to a developing nation like Haiti one time to see how little the rest of the world gets along on what we take for granted. And what's important about this is that this is an unsustainable system. This is a locally feudalistic, globally imperialistic system that just steps on everyone else for those resources. From the DHS point of view, it creates an instability in our own safety and homeland security. It's extremely costly. We're actually using up more resources than anybody else in the world will ever see because it'll be gone by the time we're done with it. And we're going to need those fossil fuels for high BTU conversion for manufacturing. And I want to have a drop of oil for my grandchild bicycle chain. And that's going to get burned up if we don't stop this. So what do you see as the weak spots in the underbelly of nuclear where we might be able to take limited funding to be sure, but some funding and strike where it will have the greatest meaning? The real issue that's really come to bear right now with the closing of the San Onofre facility is now we're going to see in America what decommissioning is going to cost and what waste handling is going to cost. So the cost of waste handling, and I go back to the money issue, it's the cost issue. That is really the soft underbelly because they've been kicking that can down the road for 50, 60 years. Oh, we'll solve it. Oh, we'll solve it. And then now we're talking about the next generation of small modular nuclear the fact is we need to stop making the waste right now because we've got things that will last for basically forever. When you look at the, the depleted uranium alone, it has a 450 billion year half-life. We've had people in this human family on the planet for only 65,000 years. This is another one of those cognitive dissonance. When you talk about reasonable foreseeable future and you're talking about containing these radioactive isotopes, for thousands and thousands of years, it's more time than we've been on the face of the earth. And had governments, had money, had societies, had constitutions, had laws. It's just crazy when we have the technology to take the sun and the wind and make our systems sustainable and stop using so much. Just conserve. We don't need nuclear power at all if we conserve. If you had one thought you would want to leave us with, or perhaps a vision of an action, that we could take in support of the vision that you've put out for us, what would that be? I think if we went into each state and filed actions in each state simultaneously, asking for an accountability, basically it's a cease and desist action until they account for the cost of the waste, the cost of our electricity, how they're going to do this, and then also... I was inspired by Dr. Caldecott several years ago. She came to Albuquerque, had a brief conversation with her, and I asked her, has anyone ever gone after the Price-Anderson Act in a legal action? And she said, I don't think so. Why don't you do it? And I could tell in her voice that it was the same sort of impatience that I've now come to realize when 
people make suggestions and ask us what we can do, well, this is something we need to do. We need to look at Price-Anderson as an unfair subsidy, potentially illegal protectionism of an industry. I'm a contractor. I can't get limits on my liability for any construction. Why should a nuclear power contractor of any kind get a limit in liability? If Price-Anderson was not there mitigating their risk, they would never build these things, and that's a really important issue to make. Price-Anderson means that that industry is subsidized. We take that away, and there will be no more nuclear plant construction. Absolutely gone, because no company, no contractor, no business person would ever do anything without limits on liability or some insurance that could cover it. And these plant problems that come up are so enormous economically that there is no liability that could cover it except for the federal government. I think we should challenge that. And as we keep renewing Price-Anderson every 10 to 15 years, we keep relicensing these plants that were only made to go for 20 to 30 years, and now we're looking at 60-year licenses. There are accidents waiting to happen. So I would challenge it on the cost, on the waste, on the legality of Price-Anderson, and the truth about the subsidies. Presuming that you would be the person to head this up or at least point the way forward, what could we do to support you in actually starting this ball rolling? You need to raise the money, and I run a nonprofit. I can raise the money for educational activities to show people how to protect their environment and how to do things, and so I would raise money, and I would start planning the actions. I don't think we should plan the actions and then raise the money because we really do not have time to, to do this. The legal action is going to take two years. We are two years into the 10-year statistical average of meltdowns, and the meltdowns that I'm talking about can really happen anytime. These are accidents waiting to happen. So we have no time to screw around anymore. You need to raise the money, and it's, it's what's known in business as a critical path method and critical thinking in design where you start doing two simultaneous parallel actions at the same time. Plan the actions, raise the money. Don't wait for one or the other to occur. So if we can do anything, and I'm not even thinking that Prison Foundation has to be the one to do it. It could be Beyond Nuclear. It could be NIRS. It could be anyone. It could be CAM. It could be anyone to raise the money to provide for the funds to at least make a stab at this legal angle on things because I believe that the legal angle is really the only way to do this. I do not think, even though I sign petitions and I go to hearings, I do not think that those things are being affected because even in a hearing, the decisions are made long before the public input is ever entertained. It's almost, it is just lip service to the law. They're required to have public input, but I do believe that the decisions are made long before, and I think that is evident in the nuclear consortium vote that happened in Virginia recently when, when now we have a totally illegal nuclear consortium that's not even subject to public scrutiny according to the law, and you've got Another one of these subsidies going on from state and federal money and, and, and industry money going into lobbying and, and actually just circumventing our environmental laws. So I think that we should just change our focus. I mean, we still should do the petitions and the measuring of the radiation and all that for historical purposes and for backup on our, on our legal work, but I don't think we should rely on those because even if we were to close one or two power plants per year, and that's our, that is our trajectory. If we close one or two, we're doing that with petitions and actions maybe, but if we only close one or two per year, that's 50 to 100 more years, and that's five to ten more meltdowns. Chuck, if people were to want to contact you, perhaps engage in further conversation, what's the best way to reach you? 
they can go to prism.org. That's www.prizm. P is in Peter, R-I-Z like zebra, M. M as in Michael, yes. And it's unfortunate that the PRISM program at NSA had that same name. <laughs> it's confusing <laughs> for some people lately, but we were there first, and PRISM has been a nonprofit since 2004. But they can go to PRISM.org. They can email me at McCune at PRISM.org. There are contact numbers there. There are forms to fill out for contact. Request a speaker, talk to us, email us, and I'm available. Chuck, I'm delighted you were available for this interview, and thank you so much for all you have done, all you are doing. Keep kicking us in new directions because we need every thought, every perception possible to turn this nuclear juggernaut around and get rid of it completely. I would say to everyone in the movement, I'm with you, I stand next to you, whether you like it or not, I'm going to be there for you. And I'm really glad you're there. Chuck McCune, thank you so much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. You're welcome, Ruby, and thank you so much for all the good work you do as well. That was Chuck McCune of the PRISM Foundation. Links to contact Chuck will be up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com. Click on the blog page. We'll have a radiation protection tip in just a moment, but first... I want to ask you for some help. At the end of August, the 24th through 26th to be exact, the annual Excellence in Journalism Conference will take place in Anaheim, California. It attracts TV and radio news directors and reporters from around the country. At least 700 are expected to attend. I would like to attend with the attention of speaking on the open mics in front of the assembled audience, networking with interested reporters and news directors, working the booths in the exhibition hall to bring up nuclear issues with representatives of stations and media organizations, and in so doing, moving our agenda to the forefront of the thinking of news professionals from mainstream media around the country. In order to attend, I need a modest amount of financial support. Now, it's not as much as it might be because I qualify as a retired member of the professional media. Because of that, I can get in at a reduced rate that saves over $1,000. My entry, parking, gas, and all workshop attendance fees can be covered for only $400. I said it was modest. I have until August 8 to get the early bird pricing. So if you wish to support my attending, please help as soon as possible. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down on the homepage, and hit the donate button, then follow the prompts. Know that I appreciate any help you can give me. Here's this week's radiation protection tip. As long as you're not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, or qualify even if you're not yet a member, who doesn't like a nice glass of wine with dinner, or with friends, or on a lazy summer afternoon? It's a great way to relax, unless you're worried about possible radionuclides in that glass of wine. California did get hit with a lot of Fukushima radiation, and who knows what's happening in other wine-growing parts of the world. Fortunately, the better wines are not sold unless they are aged, and then the bottles have their year clearly displayed. So for the sake of safety, stick with varietals that were bottled in 2010 or before. So much for Nouveau Beaujolais! But at least when that relaxing hit of alcohol meets your bloodstream, we'll be able to kick back and really relax. 
Hey, I'm continuing my shout-out for a contact to John Stewart or any of his staff. He needs a nuclear pundit on The Daily Show, and I am it. I'm looking for a contact into John's organization. I don't care how obscure. It can be his car washer, his babysitter, the janitor at the studio, anyone. Let's get the two of us together for a chat. If you've got any leads, send them to me at info at nuclearhotseat.com. Here's the week's final thought. Do you know where the highest thyroid cancer rates in the United States are grouped? According to Joe Mangano and Radiation and the Public Health Project, it's within 50 miles of the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island. And they say nobody died and nobody got sick. Ha! Next year, March 28th, marks the 35th anniversary of the nuclear accident that happened at Three Mile Island. Most of America seems to have forgotten the event. Heck, a lot of you weren't even born then. And certainly we have forgotten the terror of nuclear that rightfully swept this nation after the accident. The time is now to start planning our awareness actions for 2014 and remind people. The media tends to ignore anniversaries of significant events unless they fall one year after it happened, maybe it'll get some mentions two years after, and then it only recognizes numbers divisible by five. The fifth anniversary, tenth, they'll skip over 15 and go straight to 20, 25, 35, and then 50. Those are the anniversaries that the media notes. So next year is our shot. If you have any ideas of how to mark this important anniversary, send me an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com. We'll get a conversation going, maybe a conference call. I'll share thoughts on this program, and let's work together so that we develop some peaceful yet dramatic actions to get the world to start paying attention to the true negative impact of nuclear on our health, safety, and economy, as well as our shared genetic future. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 23, 2013, number 110010. Material for this week's podcast has been compiled from ENENews.com, Boston.com, Beyond Nuclear, Bloomberg, DailyMail.com, Stars and Stripes, Kyoto, The Australian, TEPCO itself, Huffington Post, RT.com, Fukushima Diary and our friend Iori Mochizuki, Intellihub.com, Asahi Shimbun, JapanDailyExpress.com, XSKF.blogspot.ca, The CBC, NewIndiaExpress.com, WorldNuclearReport.org, LATimes.com, ChinaDialogue.net, those wild and wacky numbnuts at World Nuclear News, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community with thanks to Kathy Iwane, Rochelle Becker, and all the rest of the gang. Our archive is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com forward slash blog. Just scroll down, click buttons, knock yourself out. The blog page also contains links to further articles, pictures, videos, and a mini description of each week's contents. Lots of info to enrich your enjoyment of the nuclear issue. And don't forget to leave some comments. You can do that on the website or on either of the two Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook pages. Don't ask me why I have two, but a web guy I once had thought it was a good idea. And who am I to argue? Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2013, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights are reserved, but I allow fair use. 
You have my permission to reuse this recording as long as proper attribution, website, and email are included. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that San Onofre is still shut down forever, and we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep! (laughs) 